Well, good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? If you're, <laughs> that's great, those of you in the room. If you're watching on Facebook, you could send up some, I don't know, some hearts or some likes or in the comment thread, you could say woohoo or get more creative than that if you want. If you're on YouTube, you can make a comment on our web stream. I'm not sure if there's a way to chat there, but hey, thanks for joining us online. We continue to make this available for you uh, so that you can participate in a variety of ways. I know some of you are finally trying to do some little getaways in the summer, maybe driving. Isn't it wonderful that we live in a state that everybody else wants to come to and we're like, yeah, let's just drive an hour and a half and we're already in paradise, right? So it's a wonderful thing. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you're here this Sunday evening. We're in a series called Walk This Way and we're near the end of this series. Uh, we are now in James chapter five. This has been a series where we've walked through uh, the book of James and tonight, the reflection that we're gonna have from the scripture is all about the way we relate to wealth. The way that we relate to wealth. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to James chapter five or on your phone or whatever, you can uh, scroll there. But as you're doing that, let's take a moment and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are uh, the great treasure of our soul. We thank you that you are the all-consuming vision of our hearts. And tonight, as we open up your word, we ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, and open up our eyes to see Jesus. Open up our ears to hear his voice. Open up our minds to understand and our hearts to believe and to trust in you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. amen. Walk this way, part nine, the way we relate to wealth. How does God want us to relate to our money? Now, right off the bat, you're like, oh man, this is like one of my least favorite things to talk about. And if you're maybe kind of like exploring Christianity and you're watching on your line, and you're like, well, let's just check out this church. And you're like, oh man, this is exactly what I hate about Christians. They're always meddling in people's personal lives. In fact, for many people, they say, actually, if there's, if there's you know, two things we want God to stay out of, we want him to stay out of our bedroom, and we want him to stay out of our wallet or our bank account. Don't tell me how to do intimacy and don't tell me how to do money. I just don't want you to talk about it. There's probably a certain moment in your life you might recall as a kid growing up when you became aware of what your family had or did not have. Uh, there, there are probably certain memories that you have. For me, I remember when we moved from Malaysia to the States and my parents were following the call of God. I shared a bit about that last week and this tremendous act of faith, this tremendous picture of trust in God. And I remember as they were you know, Bible college students and trusting the Lord for each uh, you know, paycheck and all of that, working at the church. And, and, uh, and I remember going to one of my friend's homes and he had a Nintendo. And as a 10-year-old boy, because he had a Nintendo, I thought, that dude is rich. That, that guy, their family, they've got it going on. Like, he has a Nintendo. Like, this is the stuff. And then we went back to Malaysia after three years of living in the States, and my parents worked for the church that uh, they had been sent from, and they were running a Bible school there. And there was an individual in the church that's a wealthy millionaire. He actually owns banks around the world in Asia and in parts of Canada and super, you know, great guy, except that, and he was always very generous to our family, 
except that every time he did something kind for us, he would make sure to serve his generosity with a side of condescension. <laughs> and so he repeatedly referred to my dad as poor pastor. He's like, no, you know, you guys need this, because after all, you're just a poor pastor. And you didn't know whether to say thank you or amen or hey, not so fast. Then uh, for after those high school years, I, I went, came back to the States and I went to school at a really wonderful university and it was wonderful in many, many ways, except that it was also in the epicenter of what we would now call the prosperity gospel. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Again, made some of my lifelong friends, met my wife there. Uh, it was an incredible time in so many ways, but I also began to be exposed to the particular kind of teaching that said, if you name it, you can claim it. If you confess it, you can possess it. If you have enough faith, God is like a Coke machine. Literally, I heard a televangelist say that. And so I had this sort of confusing relationship toward wealth and possessions. Are we supposed to have envy about other people's possessions? Are we supposed to have pity about our own lack of possessions? Or are we supposed to have greed and sanctify it in Christianese? Which way are we supposed to relate to wealth? What is the way of relating to wealth? Now, maybe you're listening to this intro and you're already like, this is whatever, whoever else this sermon is for, it's not for me because I ain't rich. I, I, I understand that. And there's no doubt the pandemic has rocked so many of us in, in different ways and shaken our sense of future and savings and maybe our, our, our even sense of our own financial security. But it's important to understand that when James is writing this, he's writing from the perspective of a people who are on the margins of society. The Bible, by and large, was written by people who were in the minority, pushed to the side, often treated, if you're talking about the Old Testament, a people that spent a lot of years as slaves. And so when you hear James rebuking the rich, you might be tempted to think he's talking about someone else, but actually, he's talking about America, in some ways. I was looking up some global reports, statistics. America has more millionaires in its country than the next six countries on the list combined. It's an incredible stat. If your net worth is more than $100,000, you are in the top 10% of the entire world, which is, again, a remarkable stat. And if you say, well, we're, we're just middle class. Well, until last year, and I don't know what changed last year, but until last year, for decades, America has had the richest middle class in the world. So this isn't even about saying that we are, oh, yeah, we, you know, we, this, is, this is a sermon for those who have just opulence and luxury, who are uh, doing quarantine in an Irish castle somewhere. This is... There's something that God wants us to hear even as we look at James's words to the wealthy. And we know by now, James is not gonna pull any punches. So brace yourself, here we go. James chapter five, verse one. Pay attention, you wealthy people. Weep and moan over the miseries coming upon you. Again, we already know James is not a very good motivational speaker. We already know this guy does not know how to win friends and influence people, but James is just like, repent! Weep and moan over the miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Moths have destroyed your clothes, he says. Your gold and silver have rusted. And their rust 
will be evidence against you. We'll talk about what he means by that in a moment. It will eat your flesh like fire. Now, before we can even look at some of these words that James is saying, we need to ask ourselves a very important question, okay? Are you ready? Who are these people? Who are the rich that James is talking about? Because instantly I want to say, well, not me. Who are these wealthy people that James is talking about. One of the commentaries I read last week said the wealthy, these could be, he could be referring to the wealthy non-Christians who were oppressing the Christian community. After all, look back at James 2, verse 6. This is what he's already talked about. He says, don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? When James has already referred to the wealthy, he's referred to non-Christians who are oppressing Christians. So you're like, maybe, maybe that is who he has in mind. But remember what we've been saying in this series. James didn't emerge from nowhere. He's not creating a new genre of of letter writing that comes out of nowhere. No, he's following, he's imitating the Old Testament tradition of wisdom literature. And in fact, if you go farther back than that, in the Old Testament, Moses gave laws that show how God's heart, God sides with the poor. We talked about this when we looked at James 2. That's why favoritism was such an offense to James. He said, look, if you're going to show favor, show the favor, show favor to the ones that God shows favor to, the poor, not the wealthy. But also in the Old Testament, we know that the poor in that context were the ones who were oppressed and taken advantage of by the wealthy or by powerful office holders, powerful landholders. And so by the time you get to the Proverbs, by the time you get to these sets of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the Proverbs uses the word wealthy or rich as a synonym for the unrighteous. You start reading the Proverbs, you're like, wow, boy, the Proverbs seem to think that rich people are automatically wicked. Well, they start to use it as a synonym. The prophets go one step further. The prophets denounce the socioeconomic oppression that's being practiced by the wealthy. If you're, not, if you're bored one night and you think the Bible is just all sort of milk toasty and sugar and spice, just read the book of Amos sometime. You're like, wow, that's kind of rough. Like That's in the Bible. And, and Amos actually will make James look like a very gentle pastor. But James is drawing on this tradition. And of course, James wouldn't have had to look far. His own half-brother, Jesus, said famously in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, woe to the rich in Luke 6. When you take all that together, that God sides with the poor, that the Proverbs equate the rich with the wicked, that the prophets automatically assume that the rich are exploiting and oppressing, and then Jesus full on just says, woe to the rich. You're like, what is exactly going on here? The rich, the wealthy that James has in mind are what we might call tonight the wicked wealthy, the quote unquote wicked wealthy. That the problem is not in the wealth itself, but in how that wealth has been gained and how that wealth is being used. Look at the text a bit more. Let's go just verse by verse really quickly. The second half of verse three, James five, verse three, consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last day. James, like kind of like a lawyer, is gonna build his case and he's gonna list four things about these quote unquote wicked wealthy. 
The first thing there with verse 3, consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. They hoarded their riches. And then in verse 4, listen, hear the cries of the wages of your field hands. These are the wages you stole from those who harvested your fields. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who deliberately underpay so that they can increase their margin of profit. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of heavenly forces. So they hoarded riches. They exploited their workers. And then verse 5, you have lived a self-satisfying life on this earth, a life of luxury. You have stuffed your hearts in preparation for the day of slaughter. That's Amos language right there. In fact, Amos goes on ahead and calls these oppressive, wealthy, indulgent rulers. Amos calls them, you fat cows. I mean, like, not even mincing his metaphors here. So they hoarded riches, they exploited workers, and they lived indulgently. And then verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who doesn't oppose you. There's a bit of discussion about what James means when he's talking about the righteous one, but I think we could safely say tonight that what this means is they preyed on the vulnerable. We can think about predatory practices today that keep people in debt, that say, let's take advantage on people who need cash immediately and let's trick them with the fine print. What James is saying is the wickedness of the wealthy is not in their wealth, but in how the wealth is gained and how the wealth is used. James is saying the wickedness of the wealthy that he's rebuking is in how that wealth is gained and in how that wealth is used. But the words are so harsh that we find ourselves wondering tonight in church, can wealthy people actually be saved? (laughs) Like, is this even possible? And I'm phrasing the question provocatively on purpose. Because if you listen to some of the the storylines or the narratives in our cultural moment, you hear people automatically say things like, or, or assume that if you're powerful, you must automatically be evil. Or if you're wealthy, you're automatically what's wrong with the world. And when you listen to the cultural narrative, their only way of making sense of the world, there's no, nobody believes in objective morality anymore, but somehow people think that a hegemony of power is the new evil. If you have been in power for decades, you are automatically the supervillain. And if you are this mysterious 2%, then the 98% is against you. You automatically are wicked. This is not what the Bible says. The Bible is not sorting people out into the oppressed and the oppressor, the powerful and the powerless. The Bible is sorting people out by, have you let the kingdom of God change everything about your life or not? That's how the Bible is trying to sort things out. The Bible's not trying to sort things out and say, well, listen, you are just blah, 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 but you need to give away all your money. You, you filthy, awful, rich people. We're going we're gonna to demand that you owe us stuff, and I don't care if you earned, worked for this. You don't, you don't deserve this. That's not how the Bible talks. The Bible's not trying to say to us that if you are rich, you're automatically wicked. The Bible wants us to think closely about how we relate to wealth. So, Can wealthy people be saved? This is what Jesus said. Matthew 19. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
very hard. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Now they're thinking, did did you say very hard or did you say impossible? When his disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved? Can powerful people be saved? Isn't that a question for our world today? Can people who have privilege be saved? Can people who have wealth or power or status be saved? If you listen to the cultural narrative of the world, the answer is no. That's why this sort of agenda that's being uh, reflected in public discourse is like a counterfeit gospel. It has its own version of wickedness and righteousness, but with no salvation. There's no actual salvation. It's if you're in power, it's like you're evil and I won't be happy until you're not in power. And if you're rich, then you're wicked and I won't be happy until you're broke and your business is bankrupt and you go to prison and I get all your money. That's the only salvation, quote unquote, that our cultural moment today can express. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, yeah, it's gonna be hard. In fact, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of the needle. But then Jesus looked at them carefully and he said, listen to this church. Jesus said, it's impossible for human beings, but say this with me, all things, all things are possible for God. All things are possible for God. The gospel does not just leave us with the direness of our situation and say, good luck with that rotten hell. The gospel says, I want you to understand that this way of living is destructive to you and to the people around you. And you, by yourself, could never save yourself. You can't figure out how to make wealth work in a positive way. You can't figure out how to use power in a redemptive way. But with God, all things are possible. But with God, your influence, your status, your privilege, your power, everything you've worked for, with God, those things can become Redeemed. See, Jesus redeems riches by redefining our relationship to wealth. Jesus redeems riches by actually trying to redefine our relationship to wealth. Not by saying, oh, you, you can't have it. Not by saying, oh, wealth is automatically sin. Jesus says, I want to actually redefine your relationship with wealth. What does that look like? I want to show you four things that match what James has said. Remember that if James is doing wisdom literature, then we need to go back to the Gospels and look at what this wisdom looks like personified. If James is giving us the teaching, Jesus has given us the life. And so what we find in the Gospel, number one, is instead of hoarding riches, Jesus calls us to invest eternally. Jesus calls us to invest eternally. You remember what James said? He said something about how your riches have rusted and that rust itself is evidence against you. Why is James saying this? Because Jesus said there's a way that you can have treasure that will not rust, that will not decay. Matthew 19 again, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is not against saving for retirement. Jesus is not against your 401k. There's no reason to be irresponsible. 
But what he is saying is make sure that you understand there is only one way that you can put in earthly treasure and get out eternal gain. There's only one way to, I mean, think about that transformation. Like that, that's, that's an amazing thing. Like what sort of thing could you, I'm gonna put in earthly treasure and what's gonna come out is eternal reward. Like show me that system. Jesus is like, right, it's called the kingdom of God. Henry Nouwen, the late Catholic writer, talked about the spirituality of fundraising. Talk about words that you never thought belonged together. And Nouwen said what the church has to offer the world is a way to take its own wealth and translate it into something that has eternal, eternal ramifications. I love that you are a generous church. I love that this is a place that knows how to let earthly wealth turn into eternal gain. Throughout this pandemic, New Life Church, you, you have remained incredibly generous. I think we're up to seven tons of groceries that have been given away and thousands of dollars that have gone here locally and internationally to a few of our partners. And you may not realize this, but every year, 20% of what is given here at New Life Church goes right back out into missions, whether it's local to the Dream Centers or international, 20% of that. This is a church that understands that if, if we're going to do this, then the treasure that comes in has to be turned into an eternal reward. The second thing Jesus says is instead of exploiting others, Jesus calls us to earn money ethically and fairly. Maybe the most remarkable story of this is the story of Zacchaeus. You remember this story? Luke 19, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I'll repay them four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. The human one came to seek and save the lost. Pause with me for a moment. You know, we, we, we think, we've come to think of salvation as this cold transaction that happens with our mind. So, okay, Jesus, yes, uh, uh, what's, what's all the facts? You came, you died, you rose again. If I believe in you, my sin, okay, great. Yes, I'll say yes to that. Sign me up. Fill out the card. Jesus, yep, yep, you're saved, stamped. What you see is much more radical than that in the Gospels. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is not just saying, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I'll mentally agree with that. I'll intellectually agree with that. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to turn my whole way of doing business around. In fact, I'm going to make restitution for what I was doing. I was exploiting, and there's a whole story here of how tax collectors used to work in Jesus' day where they could charge an arbitrary amount, and nobody would know what the actual tax was, so they could keep whatever they could get out of people. They could keep it for themselves, and Zacchaeus knows this. Some years ago, a man came into our church, and, and as he began to attend and joined in one of the ministries. He got radically saved and nobody talked to him about his business and nobody talked to him about what he was doing. But just over time, as he was getting to know Jesus, he began to be convicted and he said, you know what, I am in a business that exploits people when they're at their weakest moments. No doubt I'm making money and it is a legitimate business, it's not an illegal business, but I'm taking advantage of people who are desperate for a basic life necessity 
and I am finding them at their weakest moment. And he said to me, he says, to be honest, I feel like a lot of times I'm driving the knife in just so that I can get paid and I don't really care what happens to them. And I listened and said, yeah, well, that, that's, that is troubling, you know. And he came to me one day and he said, I've decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out. I'm going to sell the whole thing. And I said, that's wonderful. Wow, what led you to that? He said, I just can't in good conscience operate with a business model that exploits people at their weakest. And he said, and more than that, he goes, I tell you what, I have committed that I'm going to give a large chunk of this away to ministries and, and, and kingdom missions. I didn't tell him to do that. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to do that. Jesus had a meal with Zacchaeus, and something about that meal must have been quite a meal. Something about that conversation, Zacchaeus says, okay, okay, I've had, this is what I'm going to do. See, if we're going to turn it around, then instead of exploiting others, Jesus calls us not only to earn money ethically and fairly, but to try to turn around what we've done. And, uh, uh, some dear friends of ours that have been at New Life for a number of years, they live in Nepal, and they run an ethical garment business called Perna, and they employ people who've been rescued from human trafficking. Train them with skills and help them to make garments that are used in a variety of things. And they've been able to get some big contracts with clothing sellers here in the States. But the whole idea of what they're trying to do is to reverse the curse of an unethical business practice. Where in some kinds of business model, these very people have been exploited and oppressed and trafficked. They're saying, well, let's not just rescue them and say, oh, Jesus loves you. Be warm and be fed. This is what James says not to do. They said, let's use trade, the very thing that exploited them. Let's use trade as the instrument of God redeeming them. Imagine that. This is why I'm saying to you, business is not the problem. It's how you do it. And the kingdom mentality here is to say, how can we do this in a way that actually will call people into the dignity and honesty of work? Thirdly, instead of living indulgently, Jesus calls us to live simply. The conviction meter is going to start rising now for me. Luke 9, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. It's such an interesting instruction. Like, like Jesus, like, he just like, keep it spiritual, man. This is awfully specific. Like, don't take two tunics. Why? Because Jesus has already said, if anyone has two tunics and someone asks for it, give it away. So he's like, just take one. Then I'll save you the trouble of having to give something away anyway. <laughs> no, the idea is to live with a kind of simplicity. Instead of living with indulgence like the wealthy, wicked, Jesus calls us to live simply. Now I understand in our world today, in Colorado Springs or beyond, wherever you're watching from, that's a relative phrase. What does that mean? And this is where only you and the Holy Spirit and your close friends and family, you, you, you got, we have to discern this together. But what I would say is discern this communally so that you have some accountability. Don't be like, no, I'm just going to decide. And all of a sudden I changed my, my idea of what vacations we would take and what we would spend money. I just changed that. No, discern it communally. And I would also say discern it regularly. 
keep revisiting that. So, okay, now that we're making a bit more, now that we have more kids, now that we're, you know, what, what is simply now, you know? Some of you that are single, you're like, simply is gonna look different from you for you in this moment than it might 20 years from now. Others of you that are retired and empty nesters, you say, well, what is, sim- what is living simply? I can't answer that for you. But I can say that Jesus invites us into that kind of way. Fourthly, finally here, instead of praying on the vulnerable, Jesus calls us to give generously to those in need. Instead of praying on the vulnerable, like James said not to do, Jesus calls us to give generously. Luke 3, verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share it with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. This is exactly what you've done. What I've been so impressed with during these last several months in New Life Church is it's impossible to be generous if you haven't already been simple. Because if you're living indulgently, there's nothing left over to be generous with. And so a person comes up and they, they need something and you're like, sorry, all of this is spoken for. But if you're able to say, actually, we've cut down what it is we need, and so there is this surplus, but it's just, it's available, it's ready. A couple weeks into the pandemic, there were two entrepreneurs at New Life Downtown who called me separately. And they each said, they didn't, they didn't know, they don't know each other, and they said to me, they said, hey, listen, if people lose their jobs, if people are out of work, could you just, just let me know, and um, we'll just write a check. One of them said, I'll just write a check, we'll take care of it. And we took them up on that couple times. Another guy gave me seven blank checks with a large dollar amount on it, several hundred dollars each check. And he said, hey, I don't need to know who this is going to, but as and when you talk to people, they don't need to feel the indignity of asking and all this stuff. If you, are, if you feel like this is, you know, person needs to just go ahead and write their name in it and give it to them. We did that. But you did that. That's you guys. I'm talking about conversations with a, with a person who's saying, yeah, you know, I had to furlough my employees and I'm going without pay, but and say, well, hey, let me run out to my car. I got something for you. It's not even really mine to give, but someone gave it to me to give. And like, I, he's thanking me. I'm like, no, no, I, this, it's not my name on the check. The spirit of being able to give generously to those in need. Maybe you're listening tonight and you think, well, this all sounds wonderful, but how do we really do this? Like, how does this actually take root in us? And it could be an entire series in itself to talk about how we reevaluate our financial budgets and stewardship and how we uh, you know, make changes. But my job tonight is not to do that. My job tonight is to point to Jesus. The reason we're able to do this is because this isn't just what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, who was very proud of their status and wealth, by the way. Paul sarcastically says to the Corinthians, wow, wish I were like you. You're kings and queens already, he says. I'm I'm picking up a theme in these early New Testament pastors. They're very sarcastic. Paul says, wow, must be nice to be you. Paul also writes this to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become 
rich. Paul's using these words, riches and poverty, in a very large sense. He's talking about more than money. He's talking about position. He's talking about power. He's talking about status. And he says, in every way, whatever word you use to describe the status, wealth, power of the Son of God. Do you know what Jesus did with that? He became poor. Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He went to the lowest of the low. Why? So that we, in our poverty, could become truly rich. Not by the measure of this world, but by the treasure of who Jesus is. Truly rich. Tonight I want us to stand together as Aaron and the worship team come. And I want to invite you to let the gospel be more than a personal transaction of like, well, Jesus, you did that so I could be saved and go to heaven. To let the gospel be more than a personal transaction, you can stand with me tonight. And to let the gospel be more than a sort of propositional truth. Not just a personal transaction, not just propositional truth, but for the gospel to actually be a powerful transformation. Not just propositional truth, oh, a set of ideas. Not just a personal transaction, oh good, you did this so I could have this. But a powerful transformation. That tonight we could say, Jesus, you are not just the truth. You are not just the life. You are the way. This whole series is about walking this way. And the only way it's possible is because of Jesus. The only way it's possible is because Jesus himself is the way. Jesus who's opened up the way. Jesus who himself is the way. And maybe tonight where it begins is by recognizing just how stunning the good news is. If you would all over the room, just open up your hands. And maybe just say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the treasure that you are. The treasure that you are. then begin to pray and Lord help me to trust you not to boast in our riches like the prophet Jeremiah said not to boast in our wisdom not to trust in these things but to trust in you the truest and greatest treasure of all we're going to worship together and after this song Pastor Evan's going to come and lead us in communion you could take the time during the song to get the elements ready from that little cup takes a bit of time to separate the wafer from the juice. But you can do that as we worship together. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table even as we sing.